this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Greetings from Fakarava. So I apologize if there's a lot of boat noise in the background. We are on a mooring, and a front has come through Fakarava, and that's one of the reasons why we're here. And so you may hear some banging and crashing and such, and wind generators and those types of things in the background. This week's interview is with Greg Cutson of Mantis Anchors, founder and CEO. He has a lot of interesting sailing stories. He owns a good old boat like I do, and he's also from the Gulf Coast, and I'm excited to have him on today. You heard from Greg's brother, Philip in the last couple episodes about what makes the Mantis Anchor special. In the bonus episode for patrons, you'll also get to hear about the rocket scientist, Deneen Taylor, who works for NASA and Mantis. Here's a little clip from her today. I noticed you guys have a lot of cool products. One was the underwater light. So we have a waterproof light. You can recharge it in its case. It has just a simple USB cable. It's good for uh, 30 feet underwater. It's really nice if you need to go under the under the boat and check your hull, um, do any inspections or check the prop. It's really convenient. Or even go down, look at the anchor. A lot of times you don't have good light. Um, we've been in situations at nighttime when you've had to dive under the boat because the prop's gotten fouled up. A thousand lumens, so it has really bright light settings on it too. So it really lights up the um, lights up the area well. So Anna and I are in Fakarava right now, and I think in the last episode I told you that I was getting ready to fly out from Tahiti to where the boat was stored in Hivaoa. And so over the last month, I've been able to see all the six inhabited islands in the Marquesas and Anna joined the boat in the fifth island I visited, which was Nukihiva, and then we visited Wapu, and then we sailed uh, for about three and a half days offshore to Fakarava and the Tuamotus, and we didn't sail all the way to Tahiti. We were thinking of going straight there, but this weather front was coming through, and so we stopped in Fakarava, which is the second largest atoll in the Tuamotus, and it's a wonderful diving location. And I plan to bring you back pictures from all that in season two of Slow Boat Sailing, which will start in August. Uh, but in July 1st, we're gonna have the Lost Episode 10 in Panama coming out at youtube.com slash slowboatsailing. All our Around the World blog episodes come out on the first Thursday of the month by 5 p.m. New York City time. Me and Daly were delayed by the airline strike, but we got back to Hiva on the 21st of May, and we spent just a few days recommissioning the boat. You know, Hiva was pretty miserable when we were there. One thing was that some of the, the food that we had, it was not in super airtight containers. Some of the grains and flour so we were we were overrun by these little tiny beetles and so I had to throw all that stuff out and clean that out 
and now it's completely clean. You can't really tell that they were here, but that was a mistake in terms of my commissioning. Uh, we also had a battery that was dead. I think it, it had we had a battery dead. You know, in general, my gel battery or my AGM batteries are kind of all going down. Uh, so I've replaced two so far. Probably have to replace the other two eventually before I leave Tahiti. But we got splashed fairly soon. The one thing about the yard there in Hiva Oa is it has no pavement, or there's very little gravel. It's mostly mud, and it really rains a lot in Hiva Oa. And so it, it was really just walking in puddles the whole time. The other thing is it, there's not a lot of wind there, so it's really hot. They also did not have electricity. They, they said they had transformers, but their transformers did not work. I couldn't get power. I had to run my generator to keep it going. Couldn't run the engine because it's not in the water, so you can't use that because the engine is water-cooled. So my only source of electricity was the gas generator. And that's kind of tricky when it's also raining all the time because it's hard to keep water out of the gasoline under those circumstances. So I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible and I thought working on the boat would be easier uh, at anchor in Tahawada than staying in Hivo. And that was true. Hivo Oa's uh, main bay is not very well situated on the island and so when you exit it you need to go upwind and you have the the whole Pacific swell coming in to a shelf and so you get some really rough conditions so I went out of there twice this this time around the first time I was getting seasick thankfully I didn't get seasick I of course was getting my sea legs at the time but still, it was very rough conditions uh, until we were able to end the upwind leg and then go downwind through the, the channel between the closest island to Hiva'o, which is Tahuata. And Tahuata has some really wonderful anchorages, and it's only uh, you know a couple hours away from the main anchorage in Hiva'o. And I highly recommend anybody visiting the Marquesas that, to get out of the harbor and as fast as you can because there are some really great anchorages just around the corner. So I spent several days in Hanamanoa Bay which is fairly famous. It supposedly has manta rays coming through. I did not see the manta rays but I was not snorkeling most of the time. They've got a, It's a white sand beach which is fairly rare in the Marquesas and it's got very clear water and it does have some coral formations. I did swim to the beach while I was there and uh, I looked at the coral and looked at our anchor which was very well set. It uh, is typically fairly crowded in the season though and there are some anchorages just to the north of it just to the south of it that are less popular if you feel like you don't have enough room to put out chain. And to tell you, you know, what a state, I mean, the boat was still in. It did not have a mainsail on it, so I spent some time putting on the mainsail and doing some other, put on the bimini, that type of thing, in Hanamanoa Bay. So I did some provisioning while I was in Hiva'oa. I got fuel. I had to rent a car to get water because the only potable water in Hiva'oa is next to the school in the town, which is far from the anchorage, and you can only 
get it out by pressing a button a liter at a time so it was very tedious time-consuming process to to get water uh, i think all the situations i've had in the marquesas to get water have been very challenging either the landings had a lot of swell and they were very difficult uh to bring a dinghy to or the the hose was too far away and you needed extra extra long hose as we did in uh, Nukahiva, or you, the only potable water was this, this basic water fountain, public water fountain, which is not near the dock and it's uh, far away. As far as I can tell, the Marquesans don't seem to treat their water, and so you kind of read the guide or ask around, you know, what anchorages have potable water and what ones don't. And that was fairly accurate because the, the free guide had somebody that was always filling water and they've done it fairly recently. But I would also ask locals uh, to double check that I was getting the potable water. So some water sources, some water sources are considered cleaner than others. And obviously if the locals don't drink it, uh, you don't want to. So I think you'd probably say that that would mean that a water maker is better. My personal opinion, my experience is that I would have spent a lot more time servicing a water maker than I did actually filling water, even though I spent a significant amount of time doing so. And the expenses that I incurred filling water were less than the, the regular maintenance expenses for a high capacity water maker. So once I got the boat ready in Tahuada, then I sailed to Fatuhiva, which is upwind. So a lot of people go to Fatuhiva before they check in. My original idea was that I was just gonna take the best tack from Tahuata, most southern point, and then I'd just motor straight in. But that took too long, and I just found it was better just to roll up the Genoa and motor straight in. and. I think it was only 20 or 30 miles, so it's not a huge deal. And I didn't go on a super high wind day. It was force four. The waves were, I don't know, four feet or something like that. And I was able to motor at five knots, so I thought that was pretty good. And that got me in to the Bay of Virgins, which is the main anchorage before dark. So, the port of entry, the nearest port of entry to Fatuhiva is Hiva Oa, which is upwind. And so a lot of people kind of illegally go to Fatuhiva before Hiva Oa after they cross the Pacific because they hear such wonderful things about the Bay of Virgins. A lot of the cruises that come in there have no French Polynesian money. And so the French Polynesian money is the CFP, the French Polynesian franc. And so there's kind of this tradition where the, the locals in the Bay of Virgins, Hanavave is the village there, will want to trade with cruisers because they, they have no French Polynesian money, so they, they, they still do trade. My experience is that those trades are really good trades for the locals and really bad trades for the cruisers. So 
they, you know, they usually want like a good piece of uh, line. I mean, if you're not going to use it, then I guess it has no value to you. But they'll give you something that's worth five dollars for for a good piece of line, which is probably would retail at eighty dollars. So I, I would, you know, I'd recommend try to give them dollars or euros or something if you're going in. I had CFP. I'd already checked in. I had French Polynesian money uh, because I didn't have time to go to Fatuhiva when we arrived in December. So that's that's why we didn't go there. But I probably would have not gone there just because it wasn't a port of entry. But it is fairly common for people to not strictly follow that rule and sometimes people get fined and sometimes they don't. So the Soggy Paws Guide, which is the free guide you can download at SoggyPaws.com and it's kind of crowdsourced but I think the crew of Soggy Paws edit it and they do a lot of good work to do that and thanks go out to them. It, it has a very big section about the optimal way to cruise all six islands of the Marquesas that have people on them permanently. And they have a very long description of how they think that you should go over the top of Hiva Oa, so you port hop or bay hop because they're not really ports, there's not really towns up there. Then you'll be east enough that you will not have an upwind leg to Fatuhiva. Problem with that is A, if you read that closely, the author of that article had not done that. B, if you do that, that means you have your motoring straight into the trade winds on the top of Hiva Oa into these bays where there are no ports, right, so you can't really refuel there, uh, but maybe you have plenty of fuel, uh, but it's definitely going to be uncomfortable. Those are not, it's not like a, 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 a coastline that is protected from the trades. A lot of that coastline is directly into the trades, so there's no, there's no protection from the swell. I think that's just bad advice. And it would carry a lot more weight if they actually had someone who followed that advice and said how wonderful it was. I think the better course is what I did, is that you go to the closest point to, to Fatu Diva. You're in the lee of the trades on uh, Tahuata's uh, nice side with all its anchorages. And then you go down around the south, and then you just have uh, that 30-mile leg to the Bay of Virgins. So the Bay of Virgins is the best anchorage in the Marquesas and the worst anchorage in the Marquesas. It's the best because it has the most beautiful views. It is very calm waters, uh, so it's not that affected by swell, but it is very narrow and it's very small and it's typically very crowded. I also experienced catabatic winds in the Bay of Virgins. It was always blowing very hard. And after I had left the Bay of Virgins, my uh, Genoa was so tangled up, the, the halyard for the Genoa was so tangled up that I could not unfurl the Genoa. But my wind generator was working the whole time, and uh, my anchor dug very well, thankfully. 
uh, because those rocks were awfully close. At least they looked like it. So I came in fairly late the first night because I tried my tacking strategy and then I later turned straight into the wind and, and just motored in because I wasn't going to make it before dark. And so I was one of the last boats in the anchorage before sunset and I didn't really have the pick of the spot so I was able to anchor in like 45 foot depths the first night and you know it's kind of scary because that ledge when you get to the 45 foot depths it really steepens really quickly so you drag just a little bit then you're in 80 foot depths and obviously you go from 40 foot depths to 80 foot depths then you've got half as much scope as you did so there's there's really that potential out there and i didn't drag in that situation but there is that potential that you'll have a lot of chain and anchor out in the bay of virgins and it's fairly common for people to blow out their windlasses trying to pull that up the only way that I think most boats will be able to do that is to drive up onto the shelf their anchor which is tricky and I'll talk about in the bonus episode another situation where that happened to me and but in the Bay of Virgins I, I was okay that first night but I decided to move because I didn't think I had enough scope and there was a one of the boats in the front in the 20-foot depths moved and so I anchored in the 20-foot depths. Now there's this guy Charlie's charts which I bought and it's it's good in the sense that it does have charts of all of Polynesia and it it, it has a fairly recent revision in I guess in the last 10 years although it seems like the author the guy has a lot more chain than I do on my boat because he's always saying to anchor in six to ten fathoms and I've got about 180 feet of chain on my primary and I could go out to maybe 250 260 if I did the road but I don't trust road so I you know my preference is to anchor a little closer there's you know I think other in the guides they they say that the there's uh, bad holding or rocks in in particular depths but a lot of times these are depths where you have no visibility so the Bay of Virgins has no visibility of the water it's very murky water uh, uh, like most of the Marquesas the towns are built next to uh, a stream and that stream makes the water very murky and so I think if you're next to a stream, the odds are that you're going to have a lot of sediment right next to that stream, and you're going to have mud to cling to versus rocks. Not always, but save evidence that we don't have it, uh, and you have some guy that says, well, I anchored in six to ten fathoms, and I was okay. That's still not a good advice for anchoring in six to ten fathoms, by my opinion, that, you know, scope is important. And, you know, unless you know that it's rock uh, and you have good reason to believe there's rock there, say it says on the charts that there's rock versus another part, I, I think you should anchor in the, the, the shallower depths and not have three to one scope, but go for five to one scope. I just don't think there's a lot of cruising boats out there that have 
500 feet of chain. You know, there might be, but I doubt it. I think most of them tap out at 300 feet of chain. So I want to wrap up this talk before our interview with Mantis Anchors Greg Tutson. Just talking about what I did in Fatu Hiva. Fatu Hiva, Bay of Virgins. First of all, why it's so beautiful is the rock formations, the jagged rocks that are framing the anchorage. And you can get just beautiful pictures, and I can't wait to bring those to you in season two of Slow Boat Sailing on YouTube. So what I did while I was there, I went on the waterfall hike, and that was kind of the last thing I did because I was having trouble figuring out where the waterfall is. The, it's actually fairly easy, uh, and I won't bore you the, with the details of the directions, but uh, one of the secrets is you want to follow the, the stone cairns, the, the stands of stones, and follow that to the, the waterfall. And it's a fairly quick hike if you know where you're going, and the odds are you'll find other cruisers doing it and they'll give you directions on your way. But you follow the main road out and you'll take the first dirt road turn that has the, the, the stacked stones and you'll follow the stream and then go up to the waterfall. And that's, you know, if you're not taking tons of pictures on the way like I was, that should take you about two hours round trip, maybe three hours. I think it took me three hours and I was really slow so I brought you great video. So if you want to get away from the bugs and the, the jungle and the heat, you should hike in Fatu Hiva. And even if you just hike the road, that's a great hike. So the first night I or first day I hiked up to the cell phone tower peak, uh, which our earlier episode guests I think they did a video of their hike there, and so that's how I knew about it. Chase the Story was the one that did that. And that's super easy. You just follow the paved road and, until you get to uh, Earth Mover that's abandoned, and then you go off the paved road and go to the cell phone tower, and then you can get beautiful views on your way of the anchorage right next to the Earth Mover. Uh, but there's so many beautiful views, it's, it's kind of hard to say which one's worth it. But it was a, a fun hike and you can do that in a couple hours. The other hike that I did was to hike to the other big village in town was Omoa. And instead of hiking there, I had somebody drive me there and that, that was fairly expensive. It was like 10,000 CFP, so about $95 US. For them to drive me but you have to understand it took them two hours to drive over rugged dirt roads in a four-wheel drive vehicle going up very steep hills and that's a wonderful hike because nobody actually drives it so they really the only cars that i saw were them driving back and also there was they were doing some road work trying to extend the uh, paved portion of that road which is mostly unpaved uh, but that was uh, a wonderful hike. It took me six hours. I think the guides will tell you it takes three hours, but it's it's about 20K, and it's 20K up and down. So uh, you won't get lost, uh, but it's, it's not, it's 
not super easy 20k. But the nice thing about the hikes is, you know, it's such a rugged landscape. It's also, there's not a ton of trees in uh, Fatu Hiva, so you get great views. All right, so I'll talk more about the Marquesas cruise in the bonus episode, and you'll also get to hear from Deneen Taylor. And those bonus episodes are free to patrons who pledge as little as a dollar per month. You can see how you can sail around the world right now by getting my book, How to Sail Around the World, part-time in Kindle or paperback, or be a patron, and all my patrons get the audiobook version of How to Sail Around the World, part-time. Here's the interview with Greg Cutson. Maybe you could talk about uh, your sailing. So how did you, I think uh, Philip started talking about your dinghy sailing. Uh, how did you go beyond your first dinghy? What, what was your next boat? You know, what really inspired me was a trip to New Zealand. Uh, luckily, in the medical profession, I have an opportunity to work abroad, right? Our license, medical license, is good for working in UK partner countries. So I got, I got fortunate enough to work in New Zealand. In New Zealand, I don't know, man, like they have as many boats as they have sheep. <laughs> Everybody owns a boat, some kind of a boat. And uh, so and, and the boats are really cheap. Uh, you live in the ocean, so it kind of makes sense. So, and, and in doing so, I met a lot of uh, not just New Zealanders, right, that are crazy about boating, but everybody is going around the world is trying to stop in New Zealand. So you have, you know, when I was there, I was inspired by these crazy awesome stories, people sailing locally and people who were in the middle of their cross navigations. So anyway, so that, that kind of got me uh, really, you know, I was always into boats, but this idea of long-term navigation, long-distance navigation, um, I really got the guts to do it from talking to these, you know, people like you and me who have done it or are in the middle of doing it, right? I bought a boat there, a 23-foot, a sterling built boat and started sailing not in the bay we started making little trips to islands 15 20 miles away from shore and knowing what i know now it was kind of crazy what we did was crazy me and uh, the girl i was dating at the time she was willing to partake i remember one time we took this small boat with raggedy sails that was leaking and a three horsepower outboard 40 miles offshore to this little island without checking the weather, without having enough gasoline on board, and without really having an anchor that works. And I end up in this bay, and the winds, I have no idea what the winds are, strong enough to make the boat lay on its side. I have a thin line and a small little anchor, Danforth anchor, that is bent up, rusty, and it's a uh, lee shore, and I'm in this anchorage, and there are rocks. I have no radio, I have no cell phone, nobody knows we're there, and have a shift in 48 hours. They have to come back for an emergency shift. And I'm thinking to myself, like, next time we're going to think this through. <laughs> but it's kind of exciting. The fact that we made it back and everything ended up being okay, um, it was kind of thrilling, and I'm an adrenaline junkie. So I, 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 like the, I like the sport, you know? You never owned a boat until you got to New Zealand. How old were you then? Uh, so at the time I was 30, I just graduated, finished my residency, and that was my first official uh, job, you know. So, yeah, 30 years old, and uh, 
I mean, I owned a 16-foot snipe on white rock plate in Dallas, and and I learned how to sail on it with Philip, and we uh, had a few trees, had a few boats, and that's how we picked it up. How long were you in New Zealand? I was there for six months working, and then two months traveling. Uh, New Zealand is an amazing place. You, uh, a lot of people who travel there, they just buy a car. The the used car market from Japan is is uh, huge, and you can buy a car for just for a couple of thousand dollars and drive it around. So we did that, and then after that, I jumped on a the boat. There was a, a website called Find the Crew. I'm sure there's a few others available now, uh, where you could uh, find yourself a boat to crew on, usually unpaid positions where you just volunteer your time. So I found a boat that was going from Darwin, Australia, on a Kupang rally through Indonesia. And uh, the captain needed help, I was willing, so after my stop at New Zealand was done, I thought, well, I'm going to develop my sailing skills. So I, I flew to Darwin, and off I went. On uh, it was a it was a 36 foot catamaran, um, and um, for the next six months, I would be sailing as crew on that cat through Indonesia. Wow, six months as crew—that's pretty cool, and that's the way to do it. That's the that's the you know definitely the cheapest way to do it. Be crew, long-term crew on somebody else's boat. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know the the you know the difficult, the most difficult part, which I didn't. The, the the one thing that I didn't anticipate was the difficulties you get into living on this close space with a bunch of people you don't know when there are problems, when there are problems between the crew and captain. Even if they're not, if, even if you're not in the center of it, you know, we had a lot of issues with my captain getting along with other crew members and uh, it was really tough. I remember being really tough. Oh, there is that. You do have to have a right set of people to do it. Yeah, people need to get along, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've used Find a Crew a lot and that's, you know, that's my primary, uh, what I'm looking for is people that are just happy in all circumstances. Because yeah. <laughs> not all it's circumstances all are good. Smiling, right? Yeah. <laughs> After Indonesia, did you go back to the States, or what did you do? Yeah, so after that trip was done, I needed to go back and start making money again. So I uh, got a job in Houston, and when I did so, I bought, I had a couple of paychecks, I bought Coconut. It's an Ericsson 38 sailboat that I still currently keep in, in Kima, Texas. You know, it's funny, Philip has been part of these adventures, sailing adventures from the beginning. From the time that we got the 16-foot snipe, and he said, I remember, I remember we got on this boat, maybe the second time I've been on a boat, period, sailboat, and Philip was with me, and there's a tree ahead of us, and we're all stressed out because we don't know how to steer the boat, and the boat started going, and we don't know why the boat is going. We don't really understand what makes it go. Maybe right. in physics class we learned about Bernoulli principle, but I mean, <laughs> when you're on the boat and the boat is moving, and you have no idea, like, what you're going to do is going to do what? And, um, and he's, you know, there's a tree, and I said, I know there's a tree, and we're, we're, we're both yelling at each other. Yes, yes, I know there's a tree, and then we collide with the tree. And he said, I told you there's a tree, and I said, I heard you. From that experience to, you know, when we bought the sailboat, the coconut, we decided to go and, you know, I, now I felt I was experienced, right? I was crew for six months on this catamaran. We're going to go, and we're going to take an offshore passage together. And we, we took her to, from Galveston to Corpus Christi, Port Aransas is around 250 miles, I think. And so me and Phil made that trip, and that was like really sobering because when we when we left, when we left Galveston, there was a small craft advisory, but I thought, ah, 30 knots, I've been at 30 knots before, what's a big deal? 
but it was rough. It was really rough. The waves were really choppy and close together, and, and everybody was vomiting. Philip was, I hope I don't destroy his manhood, but he was laying on a, on a really uncomfortable vomiting on the boat. And, then, and we're going downwind, and we're making pretty good time, but it was night. We didn't really have GPS. Scary. We decided, you know what, we're going to turn. Oh, and then I had... Uh, I had I had a girlfriend at the time, and she suggested insisted on the fact that we should go back to Galveston, which in general wasn't a bad idea. Except now it was upwind, and it was really rough. And if we were going eight knots on a, on a little bit of a jib going down, now we're going half a knot or maybe a quarter of a knot back up. And that trip took us like seven hours with the engine at 2,500 RPM. It's not as comfortable either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that so then then we finally like you know finally we get to Galveston and we hit the dock on the way back and it has its own stories and then uh, we finally tried again three days later the weather comes down we make it to to Port Aransas and the way back it gets on the on the way back it gets choppy choppy enough that we want to pull in you know at this point in time we just want comfortable sailing we don't want to find anything anymore so uh, we pull in at Freeport we take the ICW from Freeport to Galveston. And most people have done it. I think it's like it's a nothing. It's a very easy trip. And should and you know, and once you're in ICW, everything's calm and you're protected and things are great, right? But we get lost because I didn't have my GPS system, didn't have charts for the ICW, and it was foggy, and we got lost. And I got stuck in Chocolate Bayou and around the ground. Luckily, it's mud. There's no rock. So we get stuck in Chocolate Bayou and soft muck and we're like in two feet so we're laying laying on our side and uh but it's choppy so it's, it's, it's a it's it's a it's a lake where we got stuck so there's some waves coming through so the world is bobbing up and down on the keel and you feel it i mean when you feel it feels like oh my god am i destroying my boat and i remember this is a funny story i remember philip it's, it's like three o'clock in the morning we call for help and somebody everybody's saying like well no there's small craft advisor again that night there's a small craft advisor and they're saying we're, we're not coming to get you today no way we'll wait till it comes down maybe tomorrow and we'll, we'll talk about that then it was small boat us the girlfriend suggested we call coast guard that wasn't a good idea because we weren't sinking yet so yeah so we're hanging out there and um you know me thinking ahead i decided we're gonna create a ditch back in case the Keel breaks off and we start sinking. We need to be able to grab stuff. And I and I and I was really surprised by Philip's like relaxed attitude. He's just sleeping, and I bug him middle of the night, so it's not surprising he's sleeping. But he's just really relaxed. He didn't have any alcohol. He's just sleeping. So I I, I shook him and I said, Phil, aren't you worried? I mean, we might sink on the boat, like bumping really hard on the keel, and who knows what's gonna happen? He's like, we are in two feet of water. If the boat breaks up, I'm gonna get up, walk to shore, and kill <laughs> a cat to go home. And it's your boat, after all. So I can see why you could be stressing out. But, and that like made so so much sense. So you just walk home. So what kind of boat, or is coconut? Coconut is a 38 foot Ericsson. It's a racing boat, a cruiser racer, right? It was developed for San Francisco Bay racing. It's a popular boat design. They draft a lot, so the our version has seven foot draft. Where we are, it's actually really hard because a lot of spaces are shallow, especially in ICW. In these little offshoots off ICW, it's really, really shallow. So if you just see his tray just a little bit off the channel, and the channels awfully often are not clearly marked, buoys wave, you know, blow away with time, and sometimes it gets foggy. So it's, you gotta you gotta know where you are. It's it's really shallow in the Gulf of Mexico. 
I was thinking about doing like a Texas 200 race and I got a lot of the charts and so there's some pretty shallow bays out there. Yeah, I mean, if you're offshore, you're cool. I mean, you get to 40 feet on the sh- you know, when you're on the shelf at the lowest, but you know, it might be uncomfortable because the waves get steep, but, uh, but it's fine. But if you get in, you know, these, the ICW, you know, that, that canal, you really have to stay inside of it. And if you just get a little bit on the shoulder, it's really easy to get stuck. You know, and most of the time, you know, you we all develop little ways of getting unstuck. But um, you know, it, it goes it goes really fast from you know from 14 feet to nothing, right? I mean, the, sometimes the surrounding areas are like a foot and a half or something. If you get stuck on that, you're really stuck. When I was at your talk last year at the Southwest International Boat Show, uh, which was on the podcast, you mentioned that you sailed all the way to the Panama Canal. Was that in Coconut? Yeah, so after a few years of saving up money, in 2007, I, I took a trip and I went, my idea was to go down, down to Panama and cross the canal and via Galapagos and then go down to Peru and then come back. You know, we ran out of time. We spent too much time dealing around, you know, once you start visiting the destinations, so the plans, are, all, all plans go out of the window. Right. So we spent too much time in Cartagena, Cartagena, Colombia. I really liked that uh, that port. And as a result, I lost the opportunity to do the trip as I planned. But we still ended up going through a canal and going to Galapagos, and that was really neat. So you sailed out of Houston, Kima, and then where did you go first? So we went Houston, Kima, then from where we jumped to Mexico, we went to Progreso first. Uh, it was actually, you know, not you know, not the best trip uh, to Mexico. You know, we left in August, early August. Okay. And um, so the winds were in those, he ended up packing. So it took me, what usually takes four to five days, took us nine. And uh, we ended up in Progreso, just because it was the first port we could pull in, because we really wanted to see land. And after nine days of bobbing yeah. around there, and um, so we pulled in Progreso, Mexico, spent some time in Merida. Yeah. And then anyway, so Progreso to Isla Mujeres, uh, everybody loves this Mojeres. Everybody knows how good a port that is. Well, you know, Progreso I heard was a really nice place. It was kind of like real Mexico versus kind of a tourist town. Yeah. So the people do go vacation to Progreso, but they're usually locals. Locals use in in pretty water. But yeah, you're right. It's not developed for American tourism. Really. A lot of expats buy houses over there. The houses on the beach are really affordable. And it's a short trip to Merida. Merida is an awesome cultural center. It's a big, big city. You got the Isla. Where'd you go from Isla? So from Isla, went to Guanaja, Honduras. From Guanaja, again, it was it's not the best time to cross. So we were fighting it pretty hard, trying to get out of the hurricane zone. So from Guanaja, we just waited for a good weather window. Tried to jump once. Couldn't make it. Came back. Right again. I don't remember that piece of land sticking out from Honduras, but I remember there's a bunch of shallows and, and reefs, and so you gotta really take a good weather window to make that around, to round that horn. Then we stopped at the beautiful islands of Providencia and San Andres that belong to Colombia. Really enjoyed both of those stops. And actually, those are the first time that I realized that I have an anchoring issue. In Providencia, it was a hard trip, tiring trip. Squalls were coming through, so you never slept country reefing and putting your sails back up and reefing, putting your sails back up. Came into the island really exhausted. And then I tried to anchor. And my standard procedure at the time, I had a 
45 pound stainless steel CQR, and I had a Plowmaster. It was a stainless steel version, and and then I had a FX 37 port. Plenty of road, plenty of room. I set them the first time, and they felt like I had a bike. You know, I you know I wasn't moving right away. It was blowing maybe 27 gusting 30. I crashed. I just went to sleep. The next thing I know, there's a knock on the on the boat that wakes me up, and I'm I haven't slept in so long. I'm, I just don't want to listen to it. I, I kind of slept through it, and the knock doesn't go away. So finally, I get up and I walk out. It's a local fisherman who's fighting to be with my. He's in a little ponga, and the waves are smashing pretty good. I mean, it's, it's it was it was a. I don't know if you if you ever been to Providence, but that little inlet, even though it's protected from big waves, it, it still gets pretty choppy in there. I actually was in Providencia. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. So right by the bridge. Right by the bridge. I'm being blown onto the bridge. And he's trying to warn us that we're being blown onto the bridge. So I had to I had to re-anchor and again didn't work. And I had 10 to 1 scope. But I was dragging. And I wasn't dragging because I mean, FX-37 is a huge anchor. If you set that anchor properly, you're not going anywhere in a big storm. So the reason we're dragging is just things weren't really biting good to begin with, you know? I didn't dive to see exactly what was going on then, but it took me three or four times to to anchor to where the boat wasn't moving. And and I thought, well, I thought I had good anchor gear, I and I, you know, I had plenty of scope, and this kind of another situation in which you have time to kind of, it's not easy, right? Especially if you're by yourself. I wasn't by myself, I had help at the time, but I was thinking if I was by myself, how much harder it would be to reposition the boat, to redeploy the anchors, to in a tight spot and try to get them to set. And I thought it should be a more reliable system than that. So that's kind of when I started dealing with the idea that what I had at least wasn't sufficient, right? Well, you know, the the biggest wins I had of the trip were in Providencia. I think that it, sometimes they get some catabatic winds off those hills. Huh? Boy, the first day after we anchored, we got these huge winds. And I thought for sure we would drag, but we didn't drag. We didn't move an inch, and we did have a mantis, so we were pretty grateful. <laughs> it worked for us that time, so we had to. Grateful too, you didn't move. And I was alone. My crew member was ashore, so it it would have been my own ordeal to to try to reset. Deal with it. But I didn't have to. Do you remember the agent? The agent's name? Yeah, Mr. Bush. Mr. Bush. Yeah. I remember Mr. Bush very well. Yeah, he's a character. Quite the character. Yeah. yeah. So the next stop was San Andres. And in San Andres, although not as dramatic because you have a lot more room in that anchorage, but we continued to have those problems where I would anchor the boat using two anchors. I would go to town. We'd be enjoying, enjoying lunch and I would see, you know, I would see the white caps and it would make me feel uneasy, you know? And you always worry, you know, what's going on with your boat? I mean, unless you have installed those, I guess now they have all these positions. It was 2007, before we had GPS locators that tell you how your boat is doing. I'm sure there are systems available now that, that make, 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 you know, make you aware of what your boat is doing. But at the time, you had no idea. And I'll come back, and surely enough, we did move, and there's a big shrimping boat right behind us, and the guy is watching us, you know, cautiously because he needs to know if he needs to intervene. So again, it kind of reinforced my idea that at least my setup, as it was, wasn't adequate. I'm trying to figure out the timing. Uh, in 2000, that was 2007, you said. 
sorry, 2000, it was, I, I made an error, it was 2009. So 2007, I went to New Zealand. Okay. In 2008, I worked. Okay. And 2009, I did public. Okay. And then, I thought Philip said that you guys founded Mantis in 2006? No, no, no. Mantis was founded in 2011. So, 2009 to 2010 was a trip. Okay. I came back in 2010, and by the time I came back, I had a working prototype. One in Colombia with a lot of downtime, and I started working on developing the Mantis. So, when we got back from, when we come back from, you know, from the trip from, from, from uh, Galapagos, I continued the development process. So that took me in 2011. 2011, we placed the first order for the anchor. Cool. You were trying to prove your mom wrong. Trying to prove my mom. I was trying to prove myself a success. Let me let me ask you. It sounds like you were already a success by most people's estimation. But let me ask you. When you say you tinkered with an anchor, how did you come up? I mean, how did that even start? I can't even imagine how you would tinker uh, with different anchor designs. That's so my idea was this. I didn't have welding skills, nor did I have a bunch of cash. So my idea was if I make a plywood anchor that works really good, outside the water, on the beach, then then if I can make it set better than the metal one of a competitor, then I will take that to the welder and we'll start making making metal products. So well, the way it started is I went to the Colombian hardware store and we're buying plywood and I was gluing over the property and we're making plywood anchor. So this wasn't a, you know, now we've grown, right? So I learned uh, the CAD software and stuff like that. But at the time, you know, I was nothing to do with an engineer. I mean, I like physics in school and I understand the basic principles that make the world work. But, you know, I'm a doctor. I just like to tinker. At the time, we're, you know, and I didn't know much about metallurgy or, or anything like that. It's funny, actually, back in the day when we first made the, a metal version of something, we tested it against the Bugel and the Rockna. And we thought that we had better setting curve. I got so excited that I was going to sell it, right? And I Googled, I made a little video to that effect. And I Googled the CEO of West Marine. And I sent him the video. And expecting that he's just going to be so elated. And, uh, and he forwarded it to his the category manager for West Marine. And I forget his name. It was Chris something. It's not, Chris Todd is currently the guy. But uh, it, was, it was not him. It was somebody else. And he uh, sent me an and, and, and reply, and I got really excited. He said, "You know, uh, we have a lot of experience with Rockman, Manson Supreme, and uh, I just don't believe what you're showing me." And that was, and and that was that. So then, maybe, maybe I didn't just want to prove my mom wrong. I want to prove him wrong. I had two motivators. Cool. Well, you know, I think if you look at the Rockna, right, that it doesn't have that much surface area compared to a Mantis, and it also doesn't have the weight at the tip. Well, you know, I have to give kudos to the, the Rockna guys. I mean, so Rockna is a really good anchor. It was a game changer. In fact, when we're going through our design, when I I had to really check myself because you already had, you know, I, I was comparing, you know, I had issues with CQR and and um, and but and Fortress is, is, has a definite use in cruising, but it doesn't have a good setting characteristics, right? So, but Rockna does. Rockna, I think, Rockna and Spade really change the game in anchor, right? So when you're talking about differences between us and Rockman Spade, you're really talking about tiny little differences. I mean, they're both good design and they both work really well. But yeah, so we were, but you know, we had a hindsight that Rockman already existed and we wanted to improve on it. So 
that in the tiny little improvements that we made is yes so we are able to provide more pressure at the tip and we have a better shape to the tip for entering into hard bottom so very few times a rockness challenge we could uh, we can give you a set where rockman can now again I, I just wanted to be clear i i respect the rockman guys and i think they did a great job and, and it was a, a big advance in, in technology when they came out with the with a Rockno one, you know. Uh, that brings up kind of another point. I I think that a, a lot of people use the fortress style anchor as a backup anchor, and because it's so easy to take apart. And I think that the Mantis kind of has that. When I got my Mantis, I was thinking that I was gonna just use it as a a backup anchor. But once I started using it, I didn't want to use anything else. But if you wanted to have a backup anchor that you put in a locker, the Mantis you can take apart, and it's pretty easy to store. It's I also easy to idea. ship. Yeah, so we wanted, you know, so, and by the way, uh, before I say anything else, I wanted to also just mention, so I, I still have a Fortress. I, I, I have a Fortress. I think uh, a Fortress is, is a good arsenal to have on a cruising boat because it's so light, and you can have a monster anchor in a light package, and the store is really compact. Uh, and when you have time to set an anchor, then it becomes really, really useful to know that you have this huge hurricane anchor, essentially, that takes no spot, no, no space, or very little space, and doesn't weigh much. If you're going to have an anchor that you're going to set in an emergency, then it can't be it. Because in an emergency, you want to be able to deploy and know it worked. You don't have time to reset and try again. So we wanted to, if we convinced you that your bow anchor, that we have the best design, then we wanted to have the same option for your spare, right? So you don't have to compromise on that. So, for example, for my spare on my personal boat, I don't just, my spare anchor is a replacement for my primer, primary anchor if I lose it. But also, I rigged it in such a way that if you're in a narrow passage, say there are rocks on both sides of you and your engine died, well, you literally have some time, just a few seconds, to deploy something. And that something you deploy better work. And sometimes the better work at short scope. So all those thoughts kind of went to when we want to make an anchor modular. It's not just because we want you to have a spare for a hurricane, you know, be able to put away a monster, but we want you to be able to have a spare for an emergency. Which, meaning a spare anchor needs to have the same setting performance as your primary. That was kind of the, the thought. So we wanted to have, we didn't, we didn't want to change the design, we wanted to have the main anchor. It's something that is modular, so you can use it for a variety of applications, right? You did end up going through the Panama Canal on that trip, right? Yeah. No, no, no. So we went through Panama Canal, and then and then we made the jump to Galapagos. That's a seven-day sail. Galapagos is such a special place. It was, uh, in fact, yesterday I was watching National Geographic, and I want to go back. I, I, you know, it's the one regret I have is I was so cheap, and I was so broke at the time. I didn't go diving there. I can you imagine you go to Galapagos, you don't do any diet. And and I don't know what was going through my head, really, because when we pulled into Galapagos, it's the first time I ever seen a whale. And the whale was bigger than my boat. And the whale was right next to my boat. And you go <laughs> and big problem comes out. How could you not want to dive there, right? right? If you go to any of the islands, you go on the bridge, there are like white tips and black tips, like surface like swimming around. Right? How in the hell do you not go dive? Well, I don't know. 
I don't think I have the right level of risk aversion to be a, a good diver. No, 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 the no, sharks no. in the water don't don't attract me, but I know a lot of divers do look for that. Oh yeah, yeah. They have a, they call it. There's an area in 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 Galapagos that is known to be the biggest concentration of shark. There's a term for it. I forgot the term. But the most sharks per square mile of anywhere in the world. The schools of hammerheads you can see over there. And I'm I'm, I'm retelling stories because again I didn't do it, but I definitely need to go back. I definitely. So how long were you in the Galapagos? So we stayed for a month. You're not allowed to, you know, in the rules in Galapagos change year to year. From what I hear, it's getting more and more restrictive. But there, Latin America after all, so rules could be bent a little bit. So, but the official line at the time was that you could go to only to one port and only stay there for a maximum of two weeks, I believe. Of course, a lot of people, I think San Cristobal and Santa Cruz are the two possible ports. And then you have to take trips from those ports like anybody else, you become like any other tourist, where you have to go on a liveaboard or you have to, you know, make your own arrangements with the locals if you're gonna go from place to place. Right. I think at some point in time, too many cruisers were bar- barbecuing the marine iguanas to decide to put a limit on it. But um, okay. so, I doubt that. But so we, but luckily we we're able to. I was able to go to Isabella, spend some time there. That that island is really a treat. And then and then the way back we we. Uh, we really had a problem. We, we we lost the water pump. A lot of people say that I just made that up to be able to stop us in the Cristobal, but we really had an issue with it. So I was able to stay a couple of more weeks at San Cristobal. It was, it was good. It was a really good experience. So how did you replace the water pump? You got it shipped in? No, no, no. Locals fix it. They got they, they got to learn to survive. All right. Uh, yeah, with, uh, to be honest, I don't even remember what my issue was at the time. What I ended up doing... Um, I remember what I ended up doing, on, it, it failed again. Whatever the fix that was made in San Cristobal didn't last. And we, I lost my water pump on the way. I was motoring a lot because you're kind of in the area where like, you lose the winds a lot. So you're relying on your engine. When I lost the water pump the second time, I was able to rig my shower sump pump to work as a water pump for my engine. That worked out. So did you go to Peru after that or no? So, so no, so that was a part of the trip that I, was, I had to scrap because I had to, I had to get back. So I went back to Panama and back through the Panama Canal and, and rushed back home. I think in what took me almost a year to get to Galapagos, uh, like in two and a half weeks, I was home. The, the winds are kind of bad on that trip. You know, they're all in your face going from Texas to Mexico. During the summer, during the summer, I was fighting it all the way. On the way back, it was super easy, super fast. I flew back home. Yeah, the, the current and the wind is a lot better on the way back, yeah. I think. I'm still deciding among the people that I've interviewed which will be the next interview for July 2017. This is the June 2017, episode 35. But I have a lot of great interviews in the can, and I know it's going to be a good one. And you'll also get to hear about Jana and Sophie's joining the boat in July in Tahiti and that cruise. This is Linus Wilson. Goodbye for now from an atoll in the South Pacific. Have some fun on the water. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.